You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. And I think that even something like ego, ego is so important and so useful when we're starting because we need that ego to start. We need to say, I think I can do something better in the market than what exists. I think I can do better for the people I want to serve. I think I can serve these people better. And ego, ego in that case is awesome. Ego in that case is why people become entrepreneurs. But when it becomes ego in, oh, I just want more. I just want more. Like if they're like, how do you define more? Like what is more? It's like running towards the horizon. If you feel like you're making progress, you're sweating, you're tired, but you're not, you're not getting there. You're just, you're just chasing this thing that has no, you're chasing the infinite. That was Paul Jarvis, the author of five books, his latest being a company of one. He joins me today to discuss why we should question business growth, how having an upper limit of growth in our businesses creates sanity and durability, and the relationship between intentionally keeping your business too small to fail and playing small. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Paul, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to dive into the book, and as we'll get into it, the book took a different direction than I was thinking it was going to. What did you think? I'm curious now. What did you think it was going to be? Well, so at first, um, knowing a little bit I'm about- I'm just going to interview you for this episode. Just Hey, I, I love it, right? It's a conversation, right? Um, you know, because of the title, I thought it was going to be about one, like one person businesses. Oh, gotcha. And I've been watching your Twitter stream and like a lot of people thought that too, just with the title, but yeah. it was about something different. And I love that it was about something different because at first I was like, you know, when you read books, you're like, okay, I'm going to read this to see what's going on, but I don't know if it's for me. Yeah. Right. Um, because I was like, man, this is going to be a great book for all the people out there with solo business and solopreneurs, like how to do it. That was my first thought. Yeah. Uh, and then as I dove in, I was like, huh, no, there, there's way more applicability to this. Uh, I thought, so I love the I love the turn there. Yeah, thanks. It's uh, it's funny because like I I love the book title and I still love the book title, but it is I I do agree it is a bit of a misnomer because it's more of a mindset or a philosophy around business than uh than it just you do it as one person because I don't even have a one person business. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so. Yeah, and that's what I was looking at because you know I was like this is a business ethos book. This isn't necessarily just mindset. It's also about the way we treat customers, the way we treat ourselves. So it goes into deeper than just mindset stuff too. And so I was like, oh, this is a different sort of beast here. Um, And so um, I was really excited about that. But I'm curious because I did some digging into your previous books. Um, So it looks like um, the dates may not be exactly correct because sometimes Amazon is sinky, but you wrote, be awesome at online business in 2013. Everything I know in 2013, I'm like, did dude seriously write two books in one year? Um, and then um, The Good Creative in 2014. Those were all self-published, right? Yeah, and there was one before all those. In 2012, I wrote um, Eat Awesome, which is a vegan cookbook, which okay. isn't on Amazon, which is why you didn't find it. Okay, so th- <laughs> this is your fourth joint here. Um, so it's two things. Like, And I've read some of your work around why you decided to traditionally publish this one. Um, but it's been like five years, four years. Why this book and why it now? 
Yeah, it's it's funny because I did. It's when you write a book called Everything I Know, I see like the next book typically won't come a few months later because yeah. of that title. But I just I wanted to focus on uh, a couple other things. Like I like having a simple business, a minimalist business, whatever you want to call it. But I also like doing different things. So like I, I, as much as I love writing, I don't want to just be a writer. As much as I love teaching courses, don't just want to do that. As much as I love podcasting or doing software. So it just it hadn't re, it hadn't cycled back around to books. It was on books pretty hard for those two or so, like 2012, 2013, 2014. It was all in for books for me. And then I just want, I was like, okay, I, I feel good. Like, I, I feel like I've written everything I have to say at that point. So I pushed it off to the side for a bit. And then for this book, this has been brewing for 20, like, it's funny because this is an idea that I've had for 20 years. It's something I've been thinking about um, for probably the last seven. And I was like, this isn't a, like, this isn't a course. This isn't a piece of software. This is a, like, this has to be a book. There's no way around it. I'm getting back into, getting back into books. So... I'm fascinated by that because um, books at this point live in a certain idea ecosystem. This is different from the rest, right? And it's super hard to explain that. At least it has been for me. Maybe you'll do a better job of explaining like when you know it's a book compared to other sort of things you might do. Yeah, I mean, for me, because pretty much everything I do is teaching now. It's just teaching in different forms. Even even software, I feel, is teaching. But for me, it's always like, okay, what is going to be the best way for people to learn the idea that I have to present to them? And for this book, because it is... It's a, it's like a philosophy book, but about business, basically. And it's like, that doesn't really work as like a... A core, like I wouldn't know how to set that up as a course that would be valuable, or I wouldn't know how to set this up as like some weird to do app for starting a business. Like it has to just be a book because it has to tell lots of stories, not just mine. It has to weave in um, data and, and studies and that. And it has a like it has an arc. Like it has a, every single chapter is about something very different in it. And I like I couldn't think of I'm like. At first, I was like, because I didn't even think that this was a book because I didn't think that anybody else had the ideas that I had about um, questioning growth. But because I'm a writer, I wrote an article about it for my mailing list. I sent it out. I was just like, I'm just going to explain to people how I'm weird and just so they understand me a bit better. And then I sent it out and I was like inundated with replies from people saying, oh, I thought I was the only one who wanted to run my business this way. So I was like, okay, this has to be, this has to be out there. And I was like, I'm just gonna go find the book that explains this the best way. And then I looked, I couldn't find one. I was like, all right, now I guess I'm writing that book. And it, yeah, like I said, it, it had to be a book based on what I needed to say in it. Yeah, I really appreciate that because, um, you know, as a lot of creatives are thinking about the medium of expression, right, sometimes they can get too focused on like, I'm a writer, so it has to be a book or, I'm, you know, it has to be the certain way instead of thinking about like, no, like there's a certain way that this particular conversation needs to come across. And when you've got a clear, you know, beginning, middle and end and it goes on that arc and it's, yeah. you know, transformational in that way, like that's a book, right? It's super yeah. like one could do like nine seasons of a podcast, maybe, <laughs> right? But it just, yeah, it wouldn't work that nearly as well. Yeah, it, I always just look for the, the best way to tell the story for the things that I need to teach. And that's why I have so many different things because there are different ways to tell stories well.
Good. Speaking of stories, you did a lot of interviews for the book. Um, what was the most surprising thing you learned from all of the interviews? Um, well, I guess the, the first thing was that I've always thought that I'm really bad at doing interviews. I'm just not a good, like even all the podcasts I have, there's no inter. It's just me or me and a co-host for all of my shows, which is fine. I get emails all the time. Like, oh, I love your show. It's my favorite show. I'd love to be a guest. I'm like, there's never been a guest on the show. Like, are you really, are you really a fan? But I just, I've always felt like I'm not good at um, doing interviews. And so I think that was, was pretty illuminating because when I was listening back to the audio, for, because I recorded all of the calls um, in audio, all the interviews were done like via Skype. So I recorded them all and listening back, I was like, I did a, I did an okay job. Like it, it wasn't bad. And so I took that content and I asked permission, of course, but then I was like, this, this audio can be used in other forms as well, which is why I made the company one podcast. So that was pretty, that was pretty interesting. It's also just interesting to talk to the, the people that I talked to. And I think it's funny cause I was writing another book because the book that I wrote, Company of One, I finished writing it, I guess, last summer, and it came out this winter. And so there's a space of time, right? And you know this from being an author. But so I started working on another book, and I started doing interviews again. And that ended up turning into nothing. Like, after I'd done, I think, 20, 30 interviews, I'm like, this isn't a book. But I was thinking about it, I'm like, oh, did I waste all that time? And I was like, I, there's no possible way that I could conceive that it was a waste of time to talk to smart people about things that I'm interested in. And it's just like in doing these interviews, I was like, these are just like, I would want to have these conversations outside of ever even sharing them publicly. They're just good conversations to have for me, hopefully for the other person. And they're just interesting. Like that to me is a, is a, I think a good interview where it, if other people hear it, that's just a bonus. Absolutely. I mean, I can tell when I'm on when I'm the guest on a podcast or when I'm doing one. I'm like, if I'm interested in the, in that guest or the host is interested, it's going to be great, yeah. right? But if we're like, oh man, we're pulling teeth and <laughs> like, I was like, oh, no one's going to like this one. Um, so yeah, you know, you reminded me of a quote. So I forget who said it, but it's serendipity. Look for one thing, find something else, yeah. <laughs> right? And it's, yeah. so it's like, you know, I've always believed like if you get smart, creative, and caring people in a room, like that's never a waste of time. Oh, um, exactly. You might just might not get what you were looking for at that particular yeah, point in time. Exactly. Um, Something else completely different could come out of it. Yeah, especially if you're looking for action, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> um, all righty. So we kind of danced around what a company of one is. So simplest definition. What is it? Go. Uh, quest, company that questions growth. Company that questions. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of businesses assume that growth is the next step after success is seen. And I disagree. <laughs> the book's thesis is basically that not that growth is bad, but that growth needs to have some critical thought put into it before we decide whether or not we want to proceed with it. Yeah, and that's a perfect sort of segue into the thing I think I appreciate it most about Company of One was your discussion on upper bounds. Um, we've had a lot of conversations on this podcast about getting to a point of being comfortable with enough which we don't mm -hmm. talk about enough in entrepreneurial space. Just being comfortable like enough is enough and you're at that point. But I think you took it a step further. It's not just that enough is enough. It's that like above enough is too much. Yeah. Um, and so tell us a little bit more about that because I was like, huh, I might have to go back to the, th to the thinking um, desk for this one. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that because there's this pressure, uh, this I think it's even a social pre- pressure. It's funny that business always comes back to humanity, I think, because it's humans that run businesses. And I think that it's just so human for people to want more or want uh, what somebody else had, like envy, or to just want to increase their social standing because they feel like they'll be more valuable or more respected in the community and that sort of thing. None of those things are bad things. Like wanting, like wanting those things aren't always bad. But I think that when we get too caught up in those things, when we get too caught up in oh, I want to run my business in a way that looks good to other people, or I want to run my business in a way that is what I think business should look like, or a real business owner would do this in my business. It's like, well, hold on a second. Like, are you running your business for yourself or for other people? And I think that even something like ego, ego is so important and so useful when we're starting because we need that ego to start. We need to say, I think I can do something better in the market than what exists. I think I can do better for the people I want to serve. I think I can serve these people better. And ego ego in that case is awesome. Ego in that case is why people become entrepreneurs. But when it becomes ego in, oh, I just want more, I just want more, like if they're like, how do you define more? Like what is more? It's like running towards the horizon. If you feel like you're making progress, you're sweating, you're tired. But you're not you're not getting there. You're just you're just chasing this thing that has no you're chasing the infinite. Absolutely. Absolutely. Remind me of two things. One, you know, I often say that to be an entrepreneur, especially in earlier stages, you have to be functionally delusional, right? Because you have to look out and you look at all the stats of the businesses that fail. You look at all the money out there in the marketplace. You look at everything that exists and you have to be able to say, yeah, but I think I can do it better, (laughs) right? Despite all of that, right? I think I could do it better. I think I'm going to make it. So there is a bit of functional delusion that you have to have. Um, sure. Second thing to remind me, and this goes way back to Aristotle, is that um, Aristotle thought that business was the only thing that was – he thought business was immoral because he was a natural law theorist because he noticed that business was the only thing that seemed to want to grow infinitely. Business people and businesses grew without bounds. Yeah. And nothing in nature grows without bounds. And so, no, the, every resource is finite. Everything outside of business, like it would be in biology, is considered cancer. Rapid, unending growth is cancer, is literally the definition of cancer. So, I would agree with that, but I would disagree that business has to work that way. Never thought that I'd disagree with Aristotle, but here we are. Hey, I disagree with <laughs> Aristotle a lot, but no, that's the thing that he confused is that it does work that way often, but it's not necessary that it does, right? Yeah, and so exactly. that but you know, it's almost another quote, I'm gonna screw it up from from Peter Drucker, but it's like the only thing that that um, comes naturally to business is chaos, um, dysfunction, and there was some other thing that he threw in there, like that's the natural byproduct of business left unchecked, right? Exactly. It's like the second law of thermodynamics, but it's business is always that. <laughs> business is always that. So yeah, I mean, I think that's the point that you're pushing is that you have to check against that because this stuff sneaks up on you and we gotta realize we're human and we'll make some choice in the moment, like, you know, six months ago. And then we wake up six months like today and we're like, why am I doing this? Like, what's going on? And then you got to sort of backtrack and figure out what the hell you did to yourself. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, that that's such an important point is that because growth is what is absolutely required at the start, we assume that's always going to be the case. We assume that because we need to go from zero to something, and that's good to go from zero to something, 
then why question that? If it's worked in the past, why is it not going to work in the future? But it 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 doesn't. It like there's a there's a natural limit. Even pe- smarter people than myself, like uh, Ricardo Semler, the um, the Brazilian entrepreneur, is like companies should grow to their organic natural size and no further. I think that's a quote that starts the book as well as a quote from Ricardo Semler. Yeah. Um, and that's where it gets super tricky because it's so easy to think that adding on another person or adding on another market or adding on another product or adding on something is going to fundamentally change the business or make it better. But at a certain point, and it's hard to say what that point is, uh, but at a certain point, adding only makes it worse. Yeah. But it's easier to solve every business problem with more. Like the easiest way to solve any problem in business is just by is is addition. And it, you're right. It's not it's not always the case that that works. Yeah. Well, the easiest to solve the first problem in front of you is more. But then you create yeah. two or three, you know, second or third order consequences where you're like, oh, and I mean, while we're on it on this point, businesses are made up of humans and they interact with humans and human problems scale exponentially, not geometrically, right? Yeah. Meaning or arithmetically, right? Which meaning that like the more people, it's not just like adding twice as many people makes it twice as hard. It actually makes it like four times as hard or eight times as hard, depending upon the scale. Mm -hmm. So that's what we have to remember. Adding like doubling the size of your team is not doubling all the things that might happen. It's you know, whatever that, that fractal would be, which I'm spacing at the moment. Anyways, um, that's how this works. And so um, that's why adding at a certain point, you reach that limit to where you you make a lot more problems than you solve than you solve by adding that thing. Yeah, it's it and it and it adds more stress, more responsibilities, more resources are required to run a thing at that size. It's harder to pivot or change direction if need be. And even like looking at some a bit of a research nerd, looking at all of the studies, they don't even line up with the things that business leaders or thought leaders say about business, about 10xing this and and growth is always the best. And I'm like looking at these studies and like most of these businesses and all the studies I looked at fail, not because their product was bad, not because the the market shifted, but because they were growing too quickly, because they put growth over profit, which in what world does it make sense to put growth over profit, to put possible growth or possible profit in the future above profit in the present? It's like it just it, it doesn't make sense. It's like putting off. Um, it's like saying, oh, I'll be happy if. Instead of like, it doesn't matter if I'm not happy now, I can't change being happy now, but I'll be happier if I get a better car or a bigger house or something like that. And it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. It's like, if you think you'll be happy, if you move, your problems tend to move with you. And so when we do things like that, we're not like, we're not solving, we're not solving a problem. We're putting band-aids on them and the band-aid just has to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger as the problem gets bigger too. Absolutely. And I, I don't think we apply the diminishing returns principle to business as much as we do to our lives, right? Yeah. Even when we do apply it to our lives. And I'm, I'm stuck in a position where, as a business strategist, a lot of people will come to me and they're like, I want to make 10 figures or I want to make eight figures or I want to make. And I'm, the first question I'm asked is like, why? Yeah. Like, what's, what's the point of that? And they're like, and you can just see sort of the wheels turn, right? As a, yeah. And so then they start listing all the things and you're like, but why are those things important? How are they going to make you better? How's it going to deliver more impact? And you're just like, whoa, I can't answer this question, right? And I'm like, well, I, 
I could take you there. Don't want to though, because yeah. right. Um, businesses should make people better and should make the planet better. And if we can't figure out what that means and what are we doing this for, you know? Yeah. Ex- yeah. And that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, alrighty. So while we're on scale, diminishing returns, you know, in chapter 11, you spend a lot of time guiding us to essentially descale launches and capital needs. And by descale, I mean, not, uh, not undercut it, but to talk about or to limit the amount of capital, to limit the amount of investment that you need to get it up and um, getting towards minimal um, profitability. Um, I want to ask the flip side of that question. What are the risks of taking this strategy? The the risk of, of launching small and with as little as possible. Correct. I, the, the risk, I guess, would be is that you don't have enough um, of a product to build demand. It's like if you if somebody wants to buy a car and you sell them a wheel or a steering wheel, it's not like it's not enough. Or if you sacrifice quality, which is trust, basically, if you sacrifice that to get something out the door, then it's it's easier to make more money than to make more trust when you lose either. So I think those are the things that definitely would be the the most risky. Yeah, I think those are probably the most risky things there. Yeah, I appreciate that because that's that's the flip side that I've seen is that sometimes you just don't get enough capital lift to make mm-hmm. it to the next checkpoint. You, and so there's like we needed 30% more, right? Um and so there's there's an accidental underplanning that can sometimes happen. Um sure. but just but just failure to get that sort of escape velocity that we need in business and at the same time I think getting the escape vel- velocity is requires far less than what people think it does, right? You don't need to yeah. make you know, three million dollars to reach it for most for most of the businesses we're talking about. Obviously, other other sky, sides of businesses. Then yes, you do. Yeah, and I mean that's a, a like, and for every business it's different, right? It's like if if Airbnb launched with two properties, they wouldn't be where they're at today. Like their their business, based on the the type of business it is and the customers they need to serve, has to have a certain volume. If you're launching a small SaaS app or teaching a course or selling services you probably don't need that level of volume. And so I think it makes sense to put critical thought towards, well, if this is the business that I want to run, then what do I need to do to make that happen, to make that actually valuable to another person, to create a win-win where they win by by buying it and you win by by helping them? Absolutely. And I think this is where we start um, getting into... Um, I'm I'm pretty sure you'll agree with me on this one that too many small business owners or owners start thinking about investors and partners way too soon or at all, right? Yeah. Um, and it's like, let's really, really think about this. Like, are you at the point where one, that's is that the type of business you want to run? Two, is it needed? Three, what are the downsides to going that route? Like, and we know, you know, one of the major downsides a lot of times is how frequently does the founder slash CEO get booted by the by the investors that, yeah, you know, they is, took on two years ago, right? Yeah, which is if it's a VC company that's looking for unicorns, it's pretty much always. <laughs> pretty much always. almost always. And a lot of businesses don't don't need that. And even if your business does, you put yourself in a better position if you focus on profitability First, because then you have le- you don't have to give up as much equity if you're building something that is innately valuable before the investment, right? Like it just it just makes sense to to think about that. And so many businesses 
can go so many profitable businesses. I think I was, I think Kauffman foundation released a stat that of the businesses they looked at, it was like 86% of businesses that took venture capital failed. And like, it's not even a sure thing because venture capital doesn't always align with the goals of your business as the founder or the the values or what's required to, to keep a customer base happy. So they can, investors are really good at taking profitable, durable businesses and making them neither. <laughs> yeah, that's one way to put it. I, you know, I'm questioning is, hmm, I'll let you answer it. I have some thoughts about it. Um, <laughs> how much is taking on investors for, um, I'll just say investors, antithetical to sort of the premise of Company of One? Um. I don't think it is because I think it requires thinking about like how it would serve, how it would serve the business one. So I think three things, how it would serve the business, like if it would be beneficial or if you could continue without them and not have to give up equity or ownership, then that's good. How it would serve the customers. So would this growth affect like serving your customers better or worse? And third, how does it affect your life? Because I think every business decision we make has a, has a related like thing that happens in our life. So if I say, well, I need to work 16 hours a day to be profitable, or I need to take on an investor to be profitable, then that means I'm sacrificing another part of my life to achieve that. And sometimes that trade-off isn't worth it. I know from if I had to work eight hours, I work like five or six hours a day. And if I had to work like eight to 10 hours a day, I wouldn't even if I was making more money, I wouldn't feel like it was a success because it would be taking away from all other aspects of my life that I actually really enjoy as well. Like I really love working, but I also love not working. So I think investors, it, it, it's tricky because I don't think there's a there's a clear cut answer, especially with when I was writing the book, all of these new investment businesses that weren't focused on unicorns that were focused on um, indie businesses didn't really exist like tiny seed or indie VC or earnest capital. Like all of these companies, it's funny. I'm talking to two thirds of those um, founders of those, of those funds in the next couple of weeks. Cause I want to have a conversation. Cause I'm like, I want to see if my mind can change on this. So it, it's and none of those were kind of at the forefront of of what I knew when I was writing the book, which I started a couple of years ago. So I, things are changing, and I think people and even investors are seeing like, hey, there can be there can be win wins created if a business doesn't like work towards the billion dollar IPO unicorn thing, which doesn't happen for most businesses anyway. Like, there's a way to be profitable. At, at a middle ground, at like a nice place, that's slow organic growth. It doesn't have to be that hockey stick. So I'm not against it, but I think that there has to be has to be thought put towards those three things. Yeah, it, it's one of those things where I've been thinking behind the scenes, you know, working on working on one book. You always have ideas for another book come up, as you know. But I was like, I think if we as a society can really like learn to love, you know, 10, 15 percent profitability in a business. Oh, yeah. um, and really like embrace the hell out of that, especially sustained growth over the long term. I think that changes the game because one, that's better than many of the safe ETF funds that you might get into. So that's better than, you know, what you're going to get out on the stock market. But mm -hmm. it's not so aggressive. Like when you demand, you know, 30 to 50 percent growth year over year over year, you're going to reach a limit. Like there's a time in which someone's going to say, you know what, I can keep my money in your company. Or I can go put my money in some other company that's earning that. And now you're only earning 12% a year. Like, what's your problem? 
Yeah, and, and like, the valuation has been set so high that a second round of investors is going to be like, nope, not going to touch that because that's valued way too high. Yeah, and so I think it's just that um, it's it's not a sexy story, but like when you look at how hard a lot of businesses work to get to that point and be able to maintain it with some degree of sanity, like there's a lot to that, right? There's a lot to that that I think we just need to shift our mindset around what success in business looks like. Yeah, and we get when we set those, like there's a dark side to setting those crazy huge goals where I was listening to an interview with um, Sophia Omarosa on um, – What's that guy's name? Without fail, uh, Alex Goldman, Alex Bloomberg uh, from Gimlet, who just sold to Spotify. <laughs> um, I was listening to her and she had uh, her nasty gal business was profitable. I think they were doing like $24 million a year, which is great. Like that's a huge amount of money. And then they took on investors. The investors valued them at $124 million. So they were trying to grow to reach that. I think they only made like $60 million the next year. And that was a failure. And it's like, in what crazy world is making $60 million a failure? Like, and she's learned, she's learned from that as well. I think she's probably one of my, she's one of my favorite business people and her, she's learned a lot from do, going that route. But it's just like, it, it's amazing. And that's like why I, I said venture capitalists can take profitable businesses and destroy them because it's definitely possible. And then like when you feel bad at not hitting a high goal, but you hit something that's better than where you started, it's like, why, why shouldn't you just be happy? Why shouldn't there just be high fives? If you yeah. hit $60 million, there should be high fives. I don't care what the valuation is. Yeah, there should be high fives <laughs> and champagne and a lot, because that's a lot of hard work and that's a lot of trust that you've built and that's a lot of problems that you solve, no matter what, right? And so, sure. um, you know, when we were thinking earlier, I was like, I think if we changed it so that we couldn't interview or we couldn't sort of profile a startup until it was 10 years old. I think there's like 80% of the entrepreneurial magazines would just cease to exist. Um, because a lot of the darlings and the unicorns, like they're great for three years, but then when you look 10 years, it's like they either don't exist or they blew up or whatever, you know? And it's like, yeah. And it also reminded me of, um, um, Eminem's newest album. He has a line in, in, one of the songs it's like when you when a platinum is a failure maybe um maybe you've reached too high right um just talking about like when just getting platinum which is the highest you know not almost the highest but it's really high up there is a failure yeah. like maybe you set the bar too high and i think it's a similar sort of thing this way yeah and i think that especially for the 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 note that you just said about durability one the standard age of a publicly traded company on the S&P is 15 years which is seems so it seems so like i've been in business 20 years like that's just ridiculous and the Kauffman Foundation looked at reference such a data nerd but the Kauffman Foundation looked at the Inc 5000 list that every startup want like every startup wants to be on the Inc 5000 list they looked at those businesses five to eight years later and found that two-thirds of them had failed so these businesses that were thought of at the time as like being the best of the best the top of the top like five years later two-thirds of them don't exist because they were chasing chasing growth yeah. Now, I'm, I'm going to reveal that the reason I think you and I are riffing so much about this particular thread is because so many people either are in business or they want to start a business. And their model is the model we're talking about, mm -hmm. where that's what it means to be successful at business. Um, what we're saying is like, actually, not so much. There are all these ranges in between. And it turns out this other model, you know, staying small, staying lean, being customer focused, being a company of one, actually makes you can make you happy and it can keep you in the game for a long time. 
Yeah. So that's why we're hanging out here so much in case you're wondering, like, man, these guys are bashing the crap out of startups. It's like, eh, we know that that's the, the model of yeah. what people think, you know? Yeah, there's another there's another way. That's not the only way. That can definitely work for some people, but it's not the only way. And the, one of the reasons why I wrote the book is because I feel like it would be a shame if somebody's like, oh, I want to start a business. I want to start working for myself. I don't resonate with that model. So maybe I shouldn't start. Maybe I shouldn't continue. Maybe I shouldn't be an entrepreneur. Maybe I'm not the type of person that should be an entrepreneur. And I feel like that that would be such a shame if people are put off because they think that's the only way. And I think what we're talking about here, what the book talks about is that there isn't that just that way. There isn't just one way or even there isn't just two ways. There's infinite ways to to do things, and you can make it work in a way that works for you, not just what some Silicon Valley hooded sweatshirt guy says you're supposed to do. Yeah, it's like for the longest time, um, I didn't get what Seth was Seth Godin was saying about freelance the difference between a freelancer and an entrepreneur, right? I went round and round and round about that, and so I got it one day, right? Whereas like it's just saying that a freelancer is closer probably to what we would say a company one. Like you can have people that are freelancers who don't have the ethos, but still like there's nothing wrong with being a freelancer. There's nothing wrong with just doing your craft and doing your thing and, and, you know, having yourself or a small team, like that's good business too, right? It's not yeah. just that you have to be this hyperscaled entrepreneur and so on and so forth. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I did. I was a freelancer for like just doing service-based business for like 15 years. And I did, I was like existed top of the market. I made decent money. It was it's funny too. Like I think about it and I'm like, I traded in having like 10, 15 clients a year making great money for having like a couple thousand customers a year doing products because there needs to be a bit of volume there to, to like, you can't sell books for like 15, $20,000 for <laughs> single copies. So like there needs to be a bit of volume there. And it's just a different, I don't, yeah, I don't think one's better than the other. It's just a different model. Yeah. So I can see some people thinking that your slash our focus on being too small to fail and being super small amounts to playing small. Right. Um, and so we're not out to like convert the, the growth at all cost acolytes. Cause that's, that's a bridge to nowhere. Yeah. Um, but what would you say about the relationship between playing small as a mindset and running a business that's too small, too small to fail or a company of one? Yeah, I think, I think that is a difference between just, like wanting to create something that's durable. And then the other side would just be like, like I probably just self doubt, like maybe I shouldn't go to the next level or maybe I shouldn't try to sell my services for more. Maybe I shouldn't try to get more customers. And I mean, like I run into that all the time. Like I teach a, a course on freelancers and the number one thing that they struggle with isn't writing proposals is confidence. Like that's a that's a huge thing in the entrepreneurial space, especially in the space that I exist where I like there's no like growth hacker bros in any of my courses. It's mostly just people like us who are who want to run durable businesses, but do sometimes maybe have confidence issues. So I think the difference there is like if you don't want to proceed simply out of fear or a lack of confidence is typically a bad reason because Fear and action can exist in parallel. I know this because I'm afraid of everything and I still do stuff. <laughs> so that alone is a bad reason to, to not proceed. But I think in terms of like thinking about the company of one mindset and, and the practicality of running a small business, I think it makes sense to think about if we remove like fear and, and all of that from the equation, if we think like, 
one, what is enough and how will I know when I've reached it and what will change for the better or worse when I do, I think is a huge thing. And the second thing is just thinking about like what you want your work life to look like, right? Like I know that I don't want to be a manager. I know that I'm also awful at managing and it's not a skill I want to develop any further. So I don't want to promote myself out of the job I like doing into a job managing that I don't want to do. So I know that the type of business that I want to run is a business that's probably me and a handful of freelancers or, or a partner or two. And so when I'm looking to build products or take things to market, I'm going to look at the what the maintenance cost of any opportunity for that is. So thinking about like, what is it going to take to, if this is the business I want to do, what is it going to take to run this? And if it's going to take like the Airbnb model where it's like, oh, we need to have like a million properties around the world, that's going to take more people than I would want to deal with. So that's not a business for me. It doesn't mean I shouldn't be in business. It just means I shouldn't be in that business. And so if we think about it, like if we kind of abstract, I think James Clear is the first one that I read that was that was talking about this. Might have been Mike Vardy too, I don't remember. But just thinking about like, if, if we always bring it back to how we want to spend our day, I think that that's a really powerful and a really easy way to think about it is like, what is the, what's the maintenance cost of any opportunity we have for the business we want to create? And how does that affect the day that we want to have? Like in your perfect work day, does it look like you're managing a team? Does it look like you're traveling all the time? Does it look like you're sitting in your home office working? That's the, that's the one that I want to sit in my home office working and then stopping. So I know that I need to build businesses or products that, that always stay in line with that, that stay in line with the purpose and the direction of that. Absolutely. Um, you know, I used it as an epigraph for one of my chapters, but it's um, Annie Dillard's quote, um, how you spend your days is, of course, how you live your life. Yeah. Right. And we forget that like what we do is we reverse engineer that and say, you know what, I'm going to cram all of this work and all of this hustle and all of this grind and all of this work so that at some point I'll have a life that's like what I want it to be. <laughs> right. But what you end up is spending your life in hustle and grind because that's how you spend your days. Right. You can flip that yeah. exactly as you're saying. Um, yeah. Also, on the flip side of that coin, I found out the hard way that like me just running a business by myself was not happy making for me. Right. Um, there's a there's a, a certain size of team where I'm in my natural manager coordinator mode and I get to delegate stuff and I don't have to do everything and all that sort of whatnot. That's just right for me. But if I'm under that, not fun. If I'm over that, not fun. And so it's, you know, everyone's going to have their own sort of DNA when it comes to this. Right. Yeah, for sure. And that's the that's the, the, the part of figuring out enough. And that's why like I, I, I've told so many people like there's no answers in the book. Like there, there aren't any, sorry, but there aren't any. There's just ways to think about the problems that you're having in your business or in the business that you want to have. Because I don't have the answers for you because I don't, I don't have the answers for your listeners because I don't know exactly what makes you happy, what makes you tick, what makes you want to do the things you're doing. I can only talk about if these are, if these are all of the things, then these are the questions we should be asking ourselves to, to get to the right answers for each of us individually. So we're a few weeks out of the book launch, and you've done quite a few interviews like this one. Um, is there something that you've been talking about more that you're like, man, I wish I would have talked about that more in the book, or I wish I would have left that out, or I, I wish there's this major piece that I would have handled differently? Have you had anything like that yet? Yeah, there's definitely been a few. I wish I hadn't brought up Facebook and Google and I didn't even bring them up in a positive way. I was just bringing them up to to tell stories. And I think both of those businesses, they're just awful businesses. And like, I wish I hadn't given them space in print. 
because I just think that they're awful, especially in the direction that I'm moving with the software products that I'm making that are very privacy focused. I just feel like we need to stop feel like as, as a society, we need to stop feeding giants that don't give a shit about us. And it's like, I wish I had, I think I mentioned Google twice and Facebook three times. And I'm like, I just shouldn't, I just shouldn't have like, it felt so innocuous at the time to just mention like, Oh, Facebook's like button was the result of a hackathon and hackathons were making a point to the rest of the story. But I'm like, oh, I just should have left that out. I should, or I should have found another example of a business that I like more to, to do that. Yeah, it's always the small things, right? Especially yeah. with where Facebook ended up in quarter four of 2018. It's like, do can we just stop talking about it? Can we stop <laughs> interacting? Like, um, yeah. if what you feed grows, maybe we stop feeding it. You know? Exactly, yeah. All righty. So as the guest for today's podcast, you get to live our listeners with, you get to leave our <laughs> listeners with a um, invitation or a challenge. With an invitation or a challenge. Um, so what would you like to leave them with as far as an invitation or challenge? Um, I think it would be a challenge. And I think it would be, in listening to you and I speak about this, I think it would be to think about in your own life or business or, or whatever thing you want to think about, it is three questions that I, that I would like you to ask. So one, how much is enough? Two, how will I know when I've reached it? And three, what will change if I do? Those are those are the things that I use personally to guide the opportunities or the directions that are presented in my business that help me kind of stay in the right line uh, to be aligned with the purpose of, of why I work. And I think those are just like the book that I wrote has no, has no answers. I have no answers. <laughs> I just have questions that you can ask. And I think those are the three best questions that I have at the moment to challenge others. Paul, it's been a blast. Time has flown. Like we've yeah. been talking 40 minutes. I'm like, what happened to that? Um, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us today, but thanks so much for writing this book that opens the door for a new way of people thinking about um, creating a business that works for them and works for us. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, Charlie. Appreciate it. This is fun. All righty, Creative Giant. So you heard it from Paul. Think a lot about enough, what reaching that point looks like and what you need to do to get there. Remember, Growth has its cost at a certain point, so you don't want to go past that. Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.